Welcome to The Real Estate Diplomats, and I'm your host, Aaron Maslianski. Today, I speak with Elisa Roadcup, who is the Executive Director of the Chicago Refugee Coalition. I have her on the show today to talk about refugees and movement, which I think are part of the global real estate picture. Why do people move? Why do people have to flee their homes? A little different than talking about luxury developments, for sure, but definitely on topic. And I have Elisa on because she's in Chicago, my hometown. There are many people that come here who are refugees, and I believe it is our responsibility here as Americans to help these people. They come from really challenging situations, whether it be fleeing from war, persecution, many different types of things that cause migration in this manner. So I have her on to talk about the types of work that they're doing to help support people to get their lives back in order. And it, later on in the episode, I talk about how I feel that this is my personal responsibility to help these people. My family came over here in the uh, 20th century. They were living in Eastern Europe, and they were Jews being persecuted, whether it be from the Nazis or pogroms, whatever it may be, and they had to leave. And some of my family came uh, straight to Chicago, some to New York. Uh, some are through Chicago via Argentina. I mean, really went through some struggles to make it. And I am so grateful that they were able to take that risk and survive and thrive. And I would hope that people gave them support when they got here. So what I'm going to do for the first six months of 2022, any transaction that I close on, I will donate $100 to the Chicago Refugee Coalition. So I ask that if you want to support them, please also go and, and make a donation, volunteer, whatever you can do, or wherever you're in your local community to help refugees. And you can go to my real estate website, therealestatediplomat.com. That's also the webpage for the show. Learn more, and you can help me spend my money <laughs> by working with me to buy or sell real estate. So I encourage you to do that. and. Let's listen in. Elisa, thank you for joining me here today. Thanks so much, Aaron. I'm so glad to be here. So Lisa, you run the Chicago Refugee Coalition, which is an organization that helps people who are refugees, uh, specifically in the Chicagoland area. There's a lot that you have to do that's in person. How do you navigate that during the constantly changing pandemic? That is such a good question, Erin. And so we operate our food distribution program through a high school in Rogers Park, which is a neighborhood that is populated by a very high uh, number of refugees and refugee families. And it's also a CPS, a Chicago public school. And so when COVID happened in, in March of two years ago, we sort of aligned ourselves very closely with all of the protocols and the sort of operations that were happening at Sullivan specifically. Mm -hmm. So like all the other CPS schools, we closed down. We had to create contingency plans on how we were still going to be distributing food to families. And so luckily, through the partnership that we have with Imperfect Foods, and the way we were able to sort of navigate volunteers and distribution plans, it's quite easy just to deliver boxes of foods and goods and resources to people's front doorsteps and leave it there and to be safe in terms of sort of the protocols or any risks that we would be taking as a staff and organization or um, as beneficiaries of our program. 
So we, you know, we were just as careful and stringent with the way that we protected ourselves and and the students and the people in our programs as we could be because it was just so critical. It's critical now, it's critical it is critical then. Yeah, no, it, it's good that you were able to pivot that way and be able to deliver the food. And, you know, there's so much more and I want to get into uh, everything that your organization does. But just because we just before we started recording, we were talking about COVID and everything. I mean, there must be so much more that you have to think about in terms of just the mental health effects that this pandemic has had, especially for somebody who has no social connection to the area, right? Mm -hmm. The stories that we're hearing over and over again from families, especially that have been affected by by COVID refugee families, is that primarily the main breadwinner of the family is the one who is out sort of on the front public lines and at the greatest risk. So um, working in meatpacking factory or at O'Hare or as a taxi driver. Mm-hmm. So the, the lead breadwinners of families are the ones who are really putting themselves out and have, I mean, been drastically disproportionately affected by, by COVID and falling ill. And then as that person in the family is finds themselves unable to work. It has just put a, a great, a much greater stress than refugees already have in terms of finding sustainable livelihoods in the city and just figuring out, you know, a way to make a good life for themselves economically through employment. But there, there is without a doubt a, a disproportionate effect on the health and well-being of refugees in, in relation to COVID. One of the other considerations that we're hearing from a lot of the resettlement agencies is the barrier around language mm-hmm. and ensuring that the healthcare services have translators that are easily sort of, you know, accessible and providing services to the broad and diverse spectrum of refugees that live here in Chicago has been a challenge, just making sure that that education is out there, that the, so that the resources and services are out there. So there are, you know, are many barriers that refugees face without a pandemic, right, just of first course. of all. And where they're coming <laughs> from. I mean, it's just, there's so much trauma that comes with them here. So it, it's a lot. And then you add in the pandemic and I mean, my God, it, it is tough. But what brought you to work in this field? That's a great question. Thanks for asking that. I was at a point in my education where I felt that I wasn't sure about this academic track of becoming a professor. And I was watching a television, I was watching an Oprah Winfrey show, actually, and it was one particular episode of a woman named Amina Lawal, who is a Nigerian woman who had been sentenced to death by stoning for wanting to have a child. And Uh, and being unmarried. And on the show, Oprah had a number of activists and human rights organizations talking about this particular kind of crime, of sentencing as inhumane, as stoning to death. And there were women who were on the stage and they were speaking, they were from Amnesty International, and they were speaking so passionately and eloquently about this issue and what could be done about it and how people could become engaged And they issued what's called an urgent action through the TV show. Mm -hmm. And so thousands and thousands of people took action on behalf of Amina Lawal for Amnesty International USA. And I remember thinking to myself, 
that's the kind of work that I want to be in. I, I was growing up in a very conservative evangelical family. I saw that it just wasn't a norm for women and girls to be treated equally or to be given equal respect and consideration. And there's this very subtle dismissal of women in that tradition. And how old were you? I grew up in it. But how old were you when you saw that episode of Oprah? I was probably 20, maybe 20, 21. Mm -hmm. And so then I finished my first master's degree and I went on to my second, which was in Boulder, Colorado, and just outside of Boulder in Netherland is an, was an Amnesty International office, urgent action office. So I went for my internship there. And I ended up being hired ultimately to work on the first Global Stop Violence Against Women campaign through that office. But what I found is that actually the story and the case of Amina Luwal had been generated and created and distributed through that specific urgent action office and those staff people in that location. And oh for boy. me, it was very much sort of a coming full circle of just the, you know, the moments of kismet that you look for in your life that help to guide the decisions that you make and your sense of rightness of, you know, this is the right place for me to be. This is what I should be doing with my life. This is a, a sense of purpose that feels aligned with, with sort of all aspects of, of who I was. And so it was, it was, became very clear to me that I was going to be working on behalf of women and girls throughout my career. And also I had an experience of surviving an incidence of sexual violence when I was in graduate school, which also informed sort of my sense of righteous rage about wanting to, to do all that I could to change the way that things were and to be a voice of education in the field of um, anti-violence. So those are some some of the reasons. I mean, my family of origin, my own sense of purpose, some of my own per personal experience and academic experiences mm -hmm. that really shaped this trajectory of being on a journey of human rights advocacy and so forth. Did anybody help mentor you or help you through those challenges that you've had? Yes, yes. I, I had a theology professor named Kiptalai Alolia, and he was one of the first men in my realm as a young woman coming up through academia, but coming out of a very conservative Christian evangelical tradition. And that didn't discourage women from education, but also didn't consider them as equal intellectuals as men. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, just there were a few things that stand out, but he said to me, your middle name, Miriam, it's, it's prophetess, you know, that's what it means. And may I just call you Miriam from now on? <laughs> so he'd always refer to me as Miriam. And the way that he regarded me and the way that he heard my contributions and my my thoughts about theology and so forth. It's sort of a situation where when you're coming out of a particular cultural norm that has has been harmful, sometimes what it required was that there was a man within my tradition that helped shatter those um, fears that I had about myself. So he's an ally. Yes. And it was the first time that I had actually experienced a real ally in, in that tradition and that movement who it's sort of this feeling of, you know, like when you know that someone loves you, 
it's a felt sense of knowing. It's an mm-hmm. experience that you have. And also being given credit, being respected, being believed in, you know, having your potential nurtured and cultivated and challenged is also a very felt experience that I think underneath his support, I really thrived under. So sort of a, a man ally within my own tradition that helped me to see more in myself than I had before. So he was one and just this an immensely kind, encouraging presence in, in my life. And then just a number of women scholars who have encouraged me, Judith Simmer Brown, who's a, a Tibetan Buddhist scholar, my mentor from Amnesty International, the Urgent Action Office, Ellen Moore. There's so many you know women along the way that I think helped support me in overcoming a lot of the challenges of of leading as a woman. And I see that that is why you are coming here to to run this organization to help these people who may not have allies and who need rescuing in many ways. Is that right? I think that they need support. Absolutely. And I think that they want to be offered numerous pathways to self-sufficiency. The experience that refugees have is so incredibly diverse, depending on the background that they're coming from, the country, to your point earlier, what they've experienced, what kind of trauma they have, what kind of resources they have available to them at any particular time or, or not. And my experience is that every refugee who starts a life over in a new country wants to forge their their own path on their own terms and for mm-hmm. themselves. They really just need the complex sort of network and web of support and community support and integrations in order to do to do well. So I, I think that it's more more than anything, and this is why I'm I'm very inspired about stepping sort of away from international development, broadly speaking, and working more locally, mm-hmm. is that whether you're, you know, fleeing uh, violence in East Africa and seeking asylum or whether, you know, you've been resettled here in the U.S. and you've had an experience of, of being forced to, to move or to mi- migrate for issues outside of your control, the, the needs are very sort of consistent all around. The exact same needs that you and I have for safety for our families, for ed- good education for our children, for health care, for uh, spiritual, emotional, social growth and inclusion. So there's tremendous need here in the city of Chicago. The refuge, the agencies that are here are barely able to scratch the surface for the, mm-hmm. for the needs. And so to me, it's really an important purpose and exciting opportunity to be leading the Refugee Coalition alongside of a very talented board and founder. I think it's wonderful that you're doing that. And, you know, the mission of this show is really to to learn about why people, you know, go and buy real estate or move around the world and also why people come to the United States. And, you know, in many ways, it's, you know, looking at people buying things and, and whatnot. But I wanted to have you on here to talk about just the reasons people migrate. Do you think that they still have those same types of opportunities that say, Somebody coming from Ellis Island, and, and I mentioned Ellis Island right now because if you see here, you won't see if you're listening, but you'll see this. My name is on a wall in Ellis Island because my great-grandfather came through there. Oh, wow. And it's, I think that sometimes we forget that most of us came here from 
you know, from escaping something like that. So do you see those same types of opportunities still available to people coming now? I think that's a great question. Uh, my family, also Irish, German, Swedish immigrants, uh, mid-18th century, coming over for, for a better life. Uh, and th there's a very distinct difference between uh, a refugee and someone who is seeking a better life of their own volition. So the definition of a refugee is a person who is forced to flee their country of nationality for a fear of uh, persecution based on religion, race, nationality, social group, or political affiliation. Mm -hmm. So refugees themselves are required to go through a very extensive process of proving the debt that they fall underneath the definition of what it means to be a refugee, which is showing a well-founded fear of persecution. So when you're looking, we're in these sort of in-depth discussions around refugees and migrants and climate refugees and climate migrants and political asylum seekers, they're all quite nuanced in terms of how they're understood in the broader framework of international human rights law and the application of that. And I think what's what's critical about refugees and that this isn't to say that everyone should be offered an equal opportunity to a life and to fulfill their full potential and to have a good and stable life. I believe that they should. But with refugees, it's particularly complicated because they are individuals who've been forced to leave their country and most often in the most perilous of scenarios, um, mm -hmm. fleeing violence and, and war, tribal war, fleeing forced marriage, fleeing female genital cutting or, or mutilation, a lot of these issues with young women and young women who are granted refugee status and resettled. What they've come out of is extraordinarily harrowing. Young, young children who have albinism are sought out for body parts that are believed to have magical healing powers oh, in God. certain parts of the world. And they have what refugees survive, not just in terms of how they fled and what their flight story is, but also the journey of the years that it's taken to come to where they are. I mean, many refugees will live in a camp for an extended period of time. Now in this sec you know, the sector, you're seeing that refugees sometimes live generations in camps. And it's a massive humanitarian problem that people are trying to wrap their minds and resources and funding around. But the the issues of why climate uh, or refugee emergencies happen are are very complex. You know, it's because of war. It's because of political persecution. Because of different kinds of violence. Because of of climate change. There are many reasons why people will apply for refugee sat status and and try to be resettled. But then, e even then, less than two percent of the world's asylum seekers are granted resettlement. Right. So it's even resettlement is a very statistically a very narrow solution to the broader issue of the global refugee crisis. There, there's 26 million refugees globally. There are 80 million individuals who are forcibly displaced from their mm -hmm. own countries. So this is one of the greatest humanitarian crises of our time. And the really interesting opportunity 
is that there are thousands, tens of thousands of refugees here in Chicago who have these stories and have these backgrounds and have these needs that uh, I, I really believe Chicagoans with their commitment to being a sanctuary city and state have can really live into. I think there's tremendous opportunity for Chicagoans to be doing more for refugees. Well, I think there's a responsibility for Chicagoans to help refugees. You recently had an event where you hosted the author Ellie Fishman, and she has a new book that came out called Refugee High, Coming of Age in America which is all about Sullivan High School, where you run a lot of your programming out of. And it was incredibly insightful for me to read that book, to actually hear the stories of these refugees, children from all different places around the world, whether it be Middle East or from Central America. There's a common thread of them trying to get by. And my God, they work hard and they have a lot of challenges to deal with, even within their own families and forced marriages and things going on back home where their families being killed, murdered. And if they ever go back, they would be too. I mean, that is a hard, and they're potentially being uh, thrown out of the country. I mean, there's a lot that takes place, but there's different programs that the school has even where former refugees, people who came to the United States post-World War II, who grew up there and now have become, you know, have really built a beautiful life for themselves, come back and try to give back. And I think that it's a responsibility of all of us to be able to to give back. I mean, have you seen a lot of the community helping? Is there a lot of support for the refugees? Yes, especially at Sullivan. I feel terrible because I didn't know, like having worked in the refugee and human rights field for 20 years, I am a Chicagoan. I didn't know about how amazing and special and unique Sullivan High School is, even from a national perspective. So over 50% of the students there are refugees. And they provide, as you had said, these multiple wraparound supports for refugee high, high school students. And the the mentoring element is so critical to an individual's self-perception of not only how do we interpret the experiences that have happened to us and this realization that we have a choice about the narrative that we tell about ourselves, of who we are, but also what we're going to be able to become and to Mm -hmm. offer the world. And so having individuals who have a shared similar experience, but have gone on to forge successful, fulfilling, happy lives and families and futures is like, it's just sometimes when I see these young refugees, especially recently resettled refugees and young refugee families, the first year is, is really one of just a lot of cultural shock and assimilation and trying to figure out what things mean and understanding not only the language, but just how things work on multiple levels, like setting up a bank account and getting a, a cell phone and also navigating all kinds of risks like targeted fraud, right, which is right. rampant amongst refugee and immigrant pop- and elderly populations in our country. So, you know, sort of navigating a lot of these initial challenges of, of the first year, just seeing that, uh, you know, there are others who are similar, especially if you are, you have the benefit of being paired with someone from your same culture, or your same country. Language. That, yes, you're right. Where you, uh, like, there's just a, 
a kinship that is immediate in those ways, I, I think that it can be so transformative in the life of, of a young person to be be mentored and to have those kinds of support. So, and we see that through Sullivan and the Extraordinary Program and what they do. There's also the Refugee Resource Center that's located at Sullivan High School, which we run and is sort of unprecedented in any kind of CPS context, except for, you know, at Sullivan. And we're looking to expand into um, more resource centers uh, it with around Chicago in in the next few years as well because there is such a need in other locations. I mean, I, I think that the needs for supports for like a, a listening voice that understands some aspect of their identity of who they were before they came here, and then seeing that it can be done. Mm-hmm. You know that that it is it is possible to to have a meaningful job and and to kind of create a new life and and to find happiness here just to have that reference point and someone believing in you it can mean the world to someone you know a few years ago i sold a house to somebody who was a refugee from iraq and supported the united states there and and had to escape and it was just the you know such a, a warm feeling to know that this person has been able to get through what he had to get through and him and his family are able to set up a home you know, here in the area and be able to make it. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. and I saw the challenges in trying to figure out how to, you know, get the mortgage and all these other kinds of things. And it's like, he must've had a good support system behind him in order to be able to get to that point. But it's really hard to get to that point. Now, there are different resettlement organizations that work here in Chicago. What makes your organization different? That's a great question. So the resettlement agencies that are here in Chicago are doing an extraordinary job given you know, the number of refugees that there are being referred to them and also in lieu of what happened to the entire global refugee resettlement regime under Trump mm-hmm. and what happened nationally in terms of policies under the Trump administration for resettlement agencies. Funding was cut. What a disaster. It was really a very strategic dismantling of the refugee support system across the country. And so I have so much respect for the work of the resettlement agencies here in Chicago, Refugee One, Catholic Charities, World Relief. Um, They're doing amazing work. And what the Chicago Refugee Coalition does is we were founded to pick up on where the refugee resettlement agencies leave off because under federal and and state support, the average refugee resettled individual will will receive around 90 days, sometimes a bit longer, depending on, on their case, but around three months worth of supports. So uh, support with rent, food, transport, and and case management. So, so basically, <laughs> after three months, somebody who came here who maybe escaped Afghanistan <laughs> was mm-hmm. helping the United States, gets dropped off in Chicago, doesn't know the language, and their support systems cut off and saying, you know, go, you know, figure it out. Yes. And, you know, they're set up with support of a case manager through the resettlement agency that's supposed to get them set up with a a good job and community supports and so forth. But what we find is that the sheer number of refugees who are now 
coming, given the sort of dearth of refugees that have been coming in previous years. So, for example, under the fi- the last year of the Trump administration, the something around uh, ten thousand refugees were resettled in twenty twenty, mm-hmm. and. Uh, that is the the lowest number of refugees that have come to the U.S. since uh, 1980, since the beginning of the resettlement program. And so what happened then was that resettlement agencies who were receiving federal funding that were supposed to be meeting the government grant outputs to maintain their funding lost the funding and lost support. And resettlement agencies were really harmed underneath the Trump administration in a very underhanded kind of way. Mm-hmm. And so so where the Chicago Refugee Coalition steps in is that we are creating supports and community and collaborations for the long-term successful integration of refugees, which is a definitely a coordinated and a collaborative effort across a lot of organizations who've been doing the work for a very long time. So we were founded with a very clear vision that we would be pick- we would not be duplicating services, that we would be picking up where other aid agencies left off. And how long has it been around for? We were founded in 2018 okay. by a man named Connor Mountner, who was a, a U.S. Uh, government staffer in D.C. for a long time and is currently working on his Ph.D. in immigration and refugees and just a, a, a very visionary and creative person who also has a Jewish background of persecution and his family fleeing Czechoslovakia. So he was the founder and we have grown considerably since we were founded in 2018. Well, it couldn't be better timing. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's true. It's true. There's such a need. And we're, we're really just so grateful to the Chicago community for all of the support. Even today is Giving Tuesday. And there's a, a really vibrant, active online campaign. So many people pitching in and contributing toward the expansion of the Resource Center at Sullivan. Since we were Founded, we've through corporate partnerships, we've distributed over 75,000 meals to refugee families throughout Rogers Park. And we have really ambitious plans for growing our our footprint and impact into the future. I think it's important to me, especially when you saw all the people coming from Afghanistan or fleeing. And I'm not sure exactly how many are coming to the Chicagoland area, but I was in the airport a couple of weeks ago and I saw this, this man and this child standing in line next to me. I was, I was going to California to a conference and I saw that they were wearing these little name tags that basically said that they were refugees from Afghanistan. Oh my God. Like, what have you been through? <laughs> yes. I mean, the, the images that we saw of the Kabul airport being overrun, the stories that I, I have heard about what people have, have lived through. We know that like the basic literacy rate for Afghan women is extremely low, that families have many, many kids, a higher average number of of children per family than in the United States, and that they're coming to us with many complex traumas, given what they have lived through and experienced. And so what you, it's interesting that you're telling me this story because the, the little name badges that individuals wear when they're being resettled is uh, 
it's like sort of a, a demarcation that's created through the International Organization of Migration, like the global body that oversees the, the movement of refugees and the UNHCR. And so it just reminds me of in my prior career when I was working for an organization called Refugee in Nairobi, the organization has a social enterprise where the young women hand make these gorgeous uh, resist dye scarves and and sell them as a livelihood and a way to make money, but also a sustainable way of income for the nonprofit. And when I would come and go through the Nairobi airport, I would see the group, the young groups of people with their badges, but they would be wearing the scarves that the girls in the refugee program made because we had a partnership hmm. with the Department of Refugee Affairs and UNHCR and IOM, and they would order scarves from us. So then when a refugee was being resettled and like flying out of the Nairobi airport, they have their badge and they have a small little bag. And in the bag was the scarves that were handmade. And so it just your airport story <laughs> of, of the, the refugee with a badge reminded me of the, the refugee scarves and sort of bearing witness to, you know, someone on such a um, sort of promising and also vulnerable moment in their journey. Yeah, it makes me grateful for the life that I have, you know, and wanting to be able to make sure that people can get an opportunity because we have a responsibility. I mean, what do you say to people who say, you know what, we don't need any refugees. We don't need immigrants. Just keep the borders shut. What do you say to that? Well, I would say that research bears out that refugees do become a positive, a net positive in terms of economic contribution to communities. They go on and they work good jobs and they become peaceful and supportive contributors to their communities and their cities. And they bring a diversity of perspectives that is is critical to the health of, of any city. So I, if someone has a very strong position, and I know there are a lot of complex feelings <laughs> around, you know, around immigration and refugee resettlement. But I think in, in specifically just speaking to refugees, I would say that it's a moral imperative for an American to welcome an individual who has experienced persecution and that it's within the moral fabric of, of our country to, to do so. I mean, I'm here because my ancestors immigrated. And as you had mentioned, you know, you had have your right. name on a plaque at Ellis, your family name on a plaque at Ellis Island. We all are here, um, with the exception our, of our indigenous brothers and sisters, all are here because uh, someone moved, um, someone picked up and, and left the comfort of one place and, and, and struck out to take a risk in another so I, I would I would just challenge people to to also sit down and have a meal or a cup of coffee or um, engage or volunteer with a refugee serving organization so so you could actually have a, a lived experience of getting to know someone who has a lived experience of forced migration who's a refugee. I think that the act of of sitting across from one another and sharing in, in anything, a, a meal or a cup of coffee or a piece of literature, it has the potential to really be transformative and to break down barriers and fears and wrong assumptions about cultures. And I think that encountering those kinds of fears in ourselves, regardless of where we fall on the political spectrum, is also a, a moral and a spiritual. It's a growth experience. It's, yes, it is a growth experience. And I, I think that it's a responsibility. Yeah, no, I hear that. 
And, you know, we talked about how uh, my name's on a plaque on Ellis Island for my great grandfather. I mean, my family escaped persecution being Jewish people in Eastern Europe, and they got out before my family got out before they were killed in the Holocaust. But parts of the family were all murdered. One of my uh, great grandfathers had to escape and go through Argentina until he got to Chicago. I mean, they're all immigrants living on the West Side. And it's like you forget, but I mean, it's, it's because of them and because they took that risk. And I don't know how much support they got. I mean, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. knows what, I mean, they, people were living in, in squalor and in, in tenements in New York or different places. I mean, it wasn't easy and it's not easy for these people either, but we, it's our responsibility to help people as just brothers to, mm-hmm. to help them through. One thing I feel as a responsibility is, is I want to be able to help your organization. And what I do for work, as people listening to the show know, I'm a real estate agent. And what I'll do for the first six months in 2022, any closing I have, I'll give $100 to your organization. And I uh, ask everyone to, to join me in, in doing that or contributing whatever you can because we have a responsibility as Chicagoans, as Americans, as global citizens to help our brothers and sisters out from anywhere in the world who are trying to escape this deep hatred and persecution. Um, So where can people go if they want to go and contribute to your organization? Well, first, I just want to say thank you so much for the incredible generosity and offering to to do that. It's uh, I'm really moved by it, and it means so much to have that vote of confidence and in the work of the organization, but to have that commitment on that philanthropic commitment on your end. So, thank you, Erin. You're welcome. I would recommend. First, to go to all of our social and follow the Chicago Refugee Coalition on Insta and Facebook and LinkedIn, because we're always posting new and fresh opportunities to engage, volunteer, become a part of the organization. We recently launched a Young Professionals Board. And so they're in the midst of shaping like local chapters and all kinds of happy hours and outreach for like 20s and 30s. And so we're really excited about the launch of the YP board. Uh, The diversity of our own board of directors is something I'm particularly proud of. Uh, We have over 70% are um, individuals of color and two of our board members are women with a lived experience of forced migration and their voices are really at the helm of leading the programs that we are shaping and work that we do. So I would also just say go uh, to our website and underneath the Get Involved tab is just a way to engage. And we are always posting more opportunities about how to volunteer with us at Sullivan or we we need drivers and helps with the logistics of drops and picks of different goods and supports within from corporations into the refugee community. So there are a lot of ways to get involved. And I would say start with our social and our website. And always, you know, drop an email to our info account for, for anyone who or corporations or companies who are interested in getting involved. Great. And I will also have uh, links to everything in the show notes. And, you know, I think that I, I love what you're doing. And I think, you know, one of the things I noticed that you've done is you, you went through the Emerging Leaders Program at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. We're both members of that organization. I've, I've been a huge supporter of them over the years. And I... Um, this is a great example of that program 
being put into place to help a lot of people and making those types of connections too. Mm -hmm. And also United Nations Association of Chicago, which we were co-fellows for the Engage an Embassy Fellowship last year. So it's awesome. I mean, I, you know, finding you, finding other people who are just these great doers, it makes me feel really amazing to live in the city and and just be able to connect with people like yourself. So I, I appreciate you coming here and doing this interview and doing the work that you're doing. But uh, I see great things happening and we're going to help a lot, a lot of people here. Thank you. I, I believe so as well. And I'm also deeply grateful to the Chicago Council on Global Affairs for the mentorship and the support, the fellowship of my cohort and the many sort of points of in- interconnectedness uh, around people who are passionate about making a really measurable impact with, within sort of global context of international development. But also just here, you know, in Chicago, in our own community, our own neighborhoods, our own backyards, the needs are so great and they're present and, and they're real. And it's my hope that the Chicago Refugee Coalition can just continue to be offering more and more opportunities for Chicagoans to get involved and to find ways to make um, a difference in the lives of refugees who are, are here in Chicago. I'll second that. Thank you for <laughs> being here. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Aaron. It's a pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Real Estate Diplomat. If you want to listen to more, go to therealestatediplomat.com or search on any podcast player for the show and hit the subscribe button. If you want to participate in this program where I'm going to be donating to the Chicago Refugee Coalition through the first six months of 2022, make sure to contact me to help you buy or sell real estate. And you can find my information again on therealestatediplomat.com. Thanks for listening.